I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about how social media intensifies U.S. political polarization, we have with us today Paul Barrett, who is Deputy Director at the New York University Stern Center for Business and Human Rights, who's also an adjunct professor at the NYU School of Law. Professor Barrett, thank you so much for joining us today. Glad to be here, and Paul is just fine. You got it. Paul, let me ask you, in your report, Fueling the Fire, How Social Media Intensifies U.S. Political Polarization, you focus on something that you call effective polarization, which is a form of partisan hostility. How do you define that, and what's an example of effective polarization? Political polarization is actually a surprisingly complex uh, concept. There are various stripes and flavors of of polarization, and it's not always a negative or harmful phenomenon. It's it's an aspect of of democracy that's inevitable and and not always a bad thing. By effective polarization, we mean the kind of us versus them hostility that is not necessarily tied to specific issues. So you and I might have a disagreement about abortion rights or the best level of taxation or what to do about immigration. If we had a sharp disagreement on those issues, you'd call that issue or ideological polarization. Effective polarization, in contrast, would be that I believe that the party you belong to, the other party, is unpatriotic, anti-democratic, abhorrent, and a threat to the republic. And therefore, regardless of positions on particular issues, I think you pose such a a danger that that I would potentially favor keeping you from power by any means available. And if you want to simplify the idea or identify someone who embodies it, I think you you have no better example than our former president, Donald Trump. If you think about his approach to politics, he refers to issues at times, but it's his, his style his mindset is that you're either on my side or you're the enemy. The media is the enemy of the people. Liberals are traitors. Immigrants are criminals and rapists and so forth. So that's what we mean by effective polarization. Paul, some critics of the social media industry, and recently there's been some well-publicized reports by the Wall Street Journal about Facebook. There's plenty of critics out there that say, you know, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube have contributed to increased political polarization in the United States. What do you think about that? Yeah, well, there, you know, to, to a lot of people, and this would cover Congress, uh, lawmakers. Even President Biden said, you know, famously several months ago, Facebook's killing people when he was talking about yeah. COVID. Right. Yeah, I'm not sure that that particular um, unfortunate offhand comment really goes to polarization. But your, your point is ab- absolutely correct. For for many people, maybe most people who thought about it, it's almost an intuitive conclusion. Of course, these platforms have to intensify polarization because if you go on there and you begin to converse, you in, it's not long before people are calling you names, accusing you of, of various types of wrongdoing and so forth. The problem is that's an intuition and only takes you so far. The further problem is that the largest social media platform, Facebook, has gone out of its way to say that's just not true. That's not our problem. 
The social science evidence on the issue does not show that we contribute to polarization, and it's a false accusation. And that has been voiced by the founder and chairman and CEO of the company, Mark Zuckerberg, in congressional testimony. It has been reinforced by his top public relations and global affairs vice president, Nick Clegg, at length. And we thought uh, it was important to kind of clarify this discussion because everybody can't be right. There can't be an obvious intuition that social media contributes to polarization. And then this large, powerful, influential company saying not true. And not only do we think it's not true, but we want to tell you that the research says that it's not true. So we thought it would be valuable to actually read the research and further interview some of the sociologists, political scientists, and others who have done the research. Because very frequently, you know, in, in, in uh, typical peer-reviewed journals, the, the studies are very narrow gauge. They are very cautious in how they phrase things. It's sometimes hard even to uh, extrapolate to a sort of, you know, common sense layperson's conclusion. So we took the trouble of, of talking to a great number of people who've done this research. And we found when we were done with that whole process that social media probably does not cause political polarization in the first instance. In fact, it would be strange to even allege that because political polarization has been increasing in this country for decades before social media platforms even existed. So how could they have caused that? However, while they don't cause political polarization, they have exacerbated it. They have intensified it. And particularly in the last five, six years, the period where social media became almost central to our politics, that intensification process, that heightening, the pouring fuel on the fire has become more and more obvious. And the social scientists say as much. I mean, I can quote to you from particular you know, studies if, you, if you'd like. It's not the easiest or most clear-cut material there are studies that raise certain ambiguities, but the bottom line is that the social scientists themselves repeatedly make that point. Social media is not necessarily the cause, but it is an exacerbating factor. Where's the real beginning of political polarization in the modern era in the United yeah. States? So if you go back to the immediate uh, post-World War II era, 1950s, there was a notable low point for political polarization. Why was that? Well, for one thing, the country had just emerged from this you know, existential worldwide battle against fascism. And there was a sense of pulling together patriotism. We are all on the same side against foreign enemies. But probably even more important, the political structure of the country, the two-party system at that time, consisted of two parties that were relatively heterogeneous. There were liberals and, and conservatives in both the Republican and the Democratic Party. There were regional dynamics at play in that you had Southern Democrats who were very conservative and racist and opposed to the early glimmers of the civil rights movement. And in the Northwest, you had a, a breed of liberal Republicans who now are practicing like dinosaurs. Some of them, you know, switched parties. Others were just defeated and the rest of them died off. And we can barely remember what a Rockefeller Republican um, was. But at one time, that was a, a prominent figure in American politics. So polarization began to rise as various factors caused the resorting 
of the American political parties. Probably the first and most important factor, and this was sustained over time, was race relations. As demands were made, primarily by African Americans, for equal treatment under the law, and various institutions in society, Supreme Court, Congress, and others, began to respond to those demands, you had a, a process whereby more conservative uh, Americans were repulsed. They want, resisted integration. They resisted judicial breakthroughs like Brown versus Board of Education. They resisted residential desegregation efforts and so forth. And this caused polarization to rise. Roll forward in time, you have other examples of social change. And these are, by the way, positive social changes, not negative. Because there's a backlash that leads to polarization doesn't mean that the demand for social or racial justice is in any way illegitimate. This is just the way things go sometimes. But you have women's rights, eventually gay rights. You have uh, changing attitudes toward religion, for example, issue of prayer in school. And then by the time you get to the more modern media era, mid-80s, you have the uh, rise of conservative talk radio, which became a very prominent, powerful, and polarizing force, followed in the 1990s by the rise of uh, partisan cable television programming, most notably Fox News, of course, but you know, followed by uh, MSNBC on the left and later, to some degree, CNN. You had a, a style of political leadership that changed. Most people date that to early 1990s, the Newt Gingrich era on Capitol Hill, when our political leaders, or many of them, seemed to sort of throw out the window old notions of bipartisanship and decorous relationships, my the respected you know gentleman from West Virginia and that kind of thing. So you had political elites sending the signal, you know, no holds barred, off with the gloves, fighting to the death. And so by the time that century changes and you get into the 2000s and Facebook becomes a glimmer in the eye of uh, a young Mark Zuckerberg, you have a polarized political system and social media comes on the scene doesn't immediately have a huge impact on uh, politics, but eventually begins to work its way into our lives in the pervasive way that it has. We're now in a, in a time where the old days of Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan getting together for a drink after work seems inconceivable at this point, doesn't it? Absolutely. That's a, a perfect illustration of changing times, changing mores. But I think it's important to emphasize that you know, 2016 was really a, a crucial year. I mean, a lot has happened in just the last few years. And I don't think we can overestimate the impact of the uniquely divisive presidency of Donald Trump in, in all ways, not just on his loyalists, the so-called Trump base, but also on the rest of the Republican Party, which has you know been running scared from Trump, even though they don't necessarily applaud him or respect him, and on his opponents, who to some degree have responded by with extreme rhetoric themselves. But now I want to make one other quick point here, which is that the reason to study political polarization is not exclusively to uh, engage in the academic exercise of trying to calibrate exactly where polarization is, which in fact some academics do. There's a so-called feeling thermometer, a, a survey-based instrument that they can use to measure where the political polarization stands. But from my perspective, the, the reason to be interested in it is because of the consequences of political polarization. And the consequences include an erosion of trust in 
democracy, democratic norms, institutions like elections, an undermining of faith and confidence in commonly held facts, for example, in connection with public health measures prescribed by experts in that field in response to a lethal pandemic that is killing hundreds and hundreds of thousands of one's countrymen. You know, a loss of trust just in other Americans, the sense that we're all, we have something in common with one another, and ultimately the danger of political violence. The stunning events of January 6th at the Capitol, you know, that was not necessarily the end of an era. That may have marked the beginning of an era. Do you think it marked the beginning of an era? I don't know, but I am certainly not confident that it marked the end of an era. Just because Trump temporarily left the scene, and just because his enthusiasts did not show up last Saturday for their you know, revival meeting and let's all be worried about the rights of the people who uh, marauded through the Capitol calling for uh, Mike Pence to be hanged and were trying to bash in the heads of Capitol Hill police officers just because they, they didn't show up the second time around does not mean that they are done. And the best place to go to confirm that is social media. What are you seeing when you're studying social media these days? Are you seeing the polarization as heavy on both sides of the aisle through uses of social media? Certainly there are examples of effective polarization. Another way of saying it, basically partisan hatred. I hate you because you're a Republican. I hate you because you're a Democrat. Not without necessarily reference to particular issues. And my response is that the most popular tech platforms are replete with that kind of partisan hatred. And you can just test it yourself. Take an article from the New York Times or the Washington Times. Tweet it. Put a little comment on top that says, you know, I agree with this or these guys are idiots. And you, are, you're, you will get a wave of, of vituperative response if you have any kind of followership at all. Say anything you want about AOC on the left or Trump on the right. Again, you, you, will, you will get a deluge of unreasoned vituperation. And that's not even taking this, the further step of going to uh, fringier platforms like Gab, you know, the, the Chans, which, you know, don't exist with the same vigor that they used to. But there, there are all kinds of, of, of darker places where you can go, um, where you get right into actually, you know, not just conspiracy theories, but actually proposals to, you know, do illegal stuff based on politics. You asked about, is it on the left and is it on the right? You know, we, we look at illustrations of political violence. There's been political violence on the left, where summer of 2020, outrage over the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, protests all across the country, for the most part, peaceful, but at the fringes, in some places at some times, leading to um, unjustifiable violence, attacks on police officers, arson, burning down police stations and burning down you know, local businesses, that, that great gesture of solidarity with people as you burn down their stores. Examples on the right are far larger in number. Again, the most significant one being the uh, insurrection at the Capitol. Overall, if you look at social science and you just sort of tally things up yourself, this is not a symmetric phenomenon. It's an asymmetric phenomenon, by which I mean the consequences of polarization that we ought to care about, we talked about before, erosion of democratic norms, loss of trust, in institutions, hostility toward public health 
prescriptions, that kind of thing. There's far more of that uh, on the right than there is at the left at, at our moment. Will it always be like that? Not necessarily. But that's the state of affairs right now. So what are the asymmetric consequences of polarization in the United States? And should we crack down on a specific pathology rather than worry about polarization more broadly on social media? Well, on the second question first, yeah, I don't really think you can try to uh, eliminate polarization per se. Again, it's an elusive concept. And I think if you were going to try to address it, you would be addressing it by for example, sponsoring, fostering, promoting calm, judicious discussions about how elections work in the United States, as opposed to saying, if my guy loses, that means the election was rigged, which by implication means that it's just all a scam. If, if you lose, the system is corrupt, which undermines the most basic principle of democracy, which is the peaceful transfer of power. If you lose an election, you step back, reconsider, and prepare for the next election, as opposed to if you lose the election, you try to kill the person who won. Or if you win the election, you try to put in prison the person you just defeated. We are perilously close to that kind of thinking in large swaths of, of the country. The last poll I saw about the legitimacy of Joe Biden's presidency, the proportion of Republicans who feel that he did not win the November 2020 election, a proposition for which there is no legitimate evidence. That proportion has been rising over the, since his inauguration. And the last one I saw was a 78% of Republicans. Three quarters of Republicans think that our president is illegitimate. That is an intellectually and politically and ideologically unstable situation. That's dangerous. And that's a consequence of extreme polarization. In this case, much more pronounced on the right than the left. But that degree of extreme divisiveness is something to worry about, in my, in my view. There are scholars who say, don't worry so much about polarization. Focus on the reemergence of white supremacist ideology. That's the key to everything. And that's a, actually a very interesting insight, because if you actually sift around and try to find the roots of a lot of the pathology in right-leaning political thinking today, a lot of it, an alarming amount of it, does trace back to white supremacist ideas. However, I don't think that's the whole story, and I don't think there's any contradiction between being very concerned about the reemergence, the public reemergence of that kind of thinking, and at the same time being very concerned about divisiveness overall, which can take you away from, a few steps away from race issues, um, without negating the importance of the race issues. Paul, what recommendations to social media companies and lawmakers do you give in this report? How can the social media industry and government take practical steps to reduce this kind of polarizing content? Let's talk first about steps the industry can take and then steps the government can take. Ideally, the industry would actually deal with this itself. At the center where I work at NYU, when I began writing these reports um, now four years ago in the wake of the 2016 election, we started with the premise that industry should deal with its own problems with social media. Let's avoid First Amendment problems, free speech issues. You know, Congress there doesn't really know a whole lot about the latest in technology. Let's let the experts deal with it themselves. 
Well, the problem is time went along. We made all kinds of reasonable incremental suggestions, and the situation has not improved very much. Um, so start with the industry. What could they do if they wanted to bestir themselves? One thing they could do is they could use tools they already have, and, they, and that they publicly acknowledge they use sometimes in a more systematic and thorough way. For example, the automated systems that run the platforms, the algorithms that rank and recommend and remove content are adjustable. The, the engineers within Facebook and Twitter and YouTube can turn the dial to use their lingo or uh, you know, break the glass as in a, a fire alarm box and tone things down or let things get hotter in terms of the kind of material that the automated systems filter out or don't filter out. At times of extreme civil unrest or anticipated civil unrest, Facebook, just to use them as an example, has actually told us that they turned the dial. In the days after the 2020 election, they could see what was going on. They calmed things down. More incendiary material was being filtered out. And then after a few days, they turned the dial back the other way. And they've said all this, not always in the same place, but you can find admissions of, of this. In connection with, I mentioned George Floyd earlier, in the days leading up to the verdict in the trial of Derek Chauvin, the former Minneapolis police officer convicted of murdering Floyd, in the, in the days before his verdict was expected, Facebook actually made an announcement that we are filtering out more incendiary materials because we don't want to contribute to potential riot. They didn't say these last words, but this is what they meant. We don't want to be part of the reason for a riot if Chauvin is not convicted. We don't want people killing each other in the streets of Minneapolis. Pretty reasonable in my mind. But then after a few days, they turned it back up. And so one thing they could do is like, no, if you guys can control that, why don't you do it more systematically? Why don't you discuss publicly what the criteria are for doing it? Explain to us why it's not done just in a permanent way. Explain to us how it works. A lot of progress, I think, could potentially be made by doing that. So in other words, they could actually take steps that might be depolarizing, taking affirmative steps. So that's one area that I think has a lot of potential. By the way, if you ask Facebook, why don't you do that? Their answer will be, well, we don't want to uh, squelch too much free expression. Because when we turn the dial, when we filter stuff out, we will sometimes filter out material that's legitimate expression that the automated system is mistaking for dangerous expression. Fair enough. I'll take at face value your concern for the First Amendment. I'm not 100% sure that's really your motivation, but the fact that it's a tricky process and takes a lot of digital engineering to do and requires continuous refinement is not a reason to not do it. What you need to do is figure out how to turn that dial and have another team of engineers figuring out how to not filter out sort of false positives and keep working at it and working at it and working at it. We all know your systems are not perfect. We all know you're going to make mistakes. But the idea that you can't do this in a more rigorous way does not pass the smell test for me. Another step the industry could take all on its own would be just radical transparency. Right now, you and I have very little idea how Facebook works. We know there are algorithms. We know there are engineers who fine-tune those algorithms. 
I toss that word around all the time. I have no idea how. <laughs> you know, I'll, never figure, I'll never understand how Facebook works. So how about if you just like started explaining to us how it works? You, you, you are so pervasive. You are so influential. So much important communication takes place across your platform. And not, not irrelevant, you are so lucrative. You have such amazing resources. Why don't you tell us how these systems rank, recommend, and remove. If we knew more, lawmakers, uh, scholars, the ordinary people who use the system might have lots of good ideas for how to make things work better. So transparency could lead to a much greater degree of accountability. Over on the government side, the main idea is that, well, we're pretty sure Facebook's actually not going to do what we're proposing the way we would, you know, to the degree we're proposing it. We've had enough experience now over not that many years, but it's been a very intense several years since we discovered that the Russians were interfering in the 2016 election by manipulating uh, Facebook and Twitter. There hasn't been enough reform, although they've made certain incremental changes. And now Congress and regulators need to get involved. And there's, there are ways to do this without threatening First Amendment values. For example, we propose that the Federal Trade Commission, which already obviously has a jurisdiction over consumer protection, be given additional authority, be empowered to draft and then ultimately enforce a code of conduct for the social media industry. This code of conduct would not say what content may or may not be on the platforms. Instead, it would do things like require the platforms to explain and justify the algorithmic adjustments that we talked about a few minutes ago. When are they deciding to calm things down? Why do they turn things, turn the heat back up? How does all of that work? Explain it to us. How are you dealing with the problem of political disinformation? Actors, both foreign and much more so domestic, who spread falsehoods intentionally in order to mislead people. What, what, what are your policies in that regard? And so forth. A whole set of obligations like that could be, the government could say, you must include those in your terms of service, make they become promises to your users, and then the FTC could enforce those promises um, under its jurisdiction for policing uh, unfair and deceptive trade practices. The FTC already has that type of enforcement authority. Another example of what the government could do would be require the uh, platforms to help establish uh, benchmarks for the amount of categories of harmful content that are on the sites even after content moderation. So in other words, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube filter out a great deal of material right now that violates a whole range of standards that are their own standards. They, they have sets of guidelines. We don't have hate speech. We don't allow cyberbullying. We don't allow pornography. Of course not you know, child sexual exploitation, which is actually criminal, so that, that is no good. All these categories, but still there's some of that material gets through the filters. You can actually count up how much of that material gets through the filters, you know, per 10,000 views. And you can say, this is the tolerable level. And if, if you go above that level, you have to take certain remedial steps. And if you resist the remedial steps, we'll, we'll fine you for that. You could set that up without actually telling the platforms, you know, affirmatively what you should and shouldn't have on the uh, 
uh, you know, make available to their users uh, because they're already on their own dime banning those categories of content. So there's a whole variety of, uh, of steps that I think an FTC supervised regime could take that would move things in the right direction. Paul, finally, I want to ask you, what are the implications for a continued or worsening polarization on social media for our American democracy? Well, I have a couple of thoughts on that. One is, if we don't do something, if we don't take this seriously, and we just allow things to kind of continue to slide, that could lead to a, a very dangerous situation in terms of the degree of alienation that significant portions of the population feel, losing touch with democratic ideas, democratics with a small d, that, you know, when you lose an election, you, you go back and you rethink, and then you come back two or four years later, as opposed to you go back, assume that there was a huge conspiracy against your side and plot to, you know, kidnap the governor of Michigan and whatever those guys were doing uh, with, you know, thinking they were going to do with the governor of Michigan. So letting things continue to slide, I mean, academics actually call it democratic backsliding, which is a, a phenomenon that sadly and ominously is going on all around the world. It's not just American. It's going on in Europe and Asia and elsewhere. That's one big problem. And I think another, another potential problem is what is going to happen in just the next couple of elections? We came out of a period which eventually the historians are going to categorize as being a very traumatic period in our politics. And if we, if we end up moving back toward that type of environment, I think things could get very perilous. And finally, I mean, on the subject of today's conversation, if we don't figure out a, a way to communicate with each other, it's going to be digital in a way that has more judiciousness, has more respect, civility, sense of proportion and balance, making a distinction between disagreement and violence. And a lot of that plays out on social media now. If, if we can't figure out a a better way to do all that stuff, we're, again, we're going to create tremendous risks, I, I think. I think those risks already exist. Paul Barrett, thank you so much for helping us begin to get to the truth of the matter about these complex polarization issues. To be continued, thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 